Well, I began my last sermon uh, by noting something that I had observed in a hospital room as a family member was receiving an echocardiogram a couple weeks ago. Well, continuing that theme, this week I found myself in a, a different kind of doctor's office as I had my annual eye exam. Every year, it seems they have some new gadget to play with as they take you in there. Uh, this time, there was a strange beach ball-sized and shaped device that they had me mash my face on, try to get my nose just right to align my eye with a camera that was embedded in the ball. It was odd, but of, of course, not quite as odd as the thing that they now use to measure the pressure in your eye, right? Where a little probe rapidly bounces off of your eyeball a handle of handful of times. Uh, that, that's a lot of fun. Uh, and then you know, they finally get you into the exam chair with your glasses off, and they start by asking which is the, the smallest line that you can re read projected on the wall while you're not sure there's anything being projected on the wall at all. Uh, so not, not a good start. But, but, but it's all necessary for trying to get the best corrective lenses possible, right? To get you seeing things clearly. I've been feeling like I'm not quite seeing things clearly for a little while now, and I've, I've begun to wonder if that's a factor in some of the physical fatigue that I've been experiencing lately. Perhaps you're experiencing a degree of fatigue as well. If not physical, then emotional or spiritual fatigue. As with so much of the Gospel of Mark, our passage this morning is in part about seeing things clearly. Not with respect to our physical eyes, but with respect to our spiritual eyes. Not for the sake of, of alleviating physical fatigue, but for the sake of alleviating spiritual fatigue and worse. So I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 15, verse 16. You can find it on page 53 in the second half of the Pew Bible. At this point, it's still early on Friday morning, approaching 9 a.m. Jesus has just been hauled before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate who found him not guilty, but who, quote, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, an insurrectionist. And having scourged Jesus, Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified. That brings us to Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord to you. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. 
And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let us pray. Father, as we turn to this familiar passage, may our familiarity with it not prevent us from engaging our hearts and our minds. May we rightly hear all you would have us to hear, that we may rightly and clearly see and believe. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, having read the text, you might be looking at your calendar and thinking, is it already Good Friday? No, that's still 19 days away with Easter Resurrection Sunday, three weeks from today. Uh, so it's understandable to be surprised that we've already arrived at Christ's crucifixion. In one sense, this is just where we are in our study of Mark, which began almost 10 months ago, May 29th of last year. Uh, but another reason uh, we've already arrived at the cross is because of how, Mark, how much Mark slows down as his gospel record comes to a close. That is, how much space Mark gives to Christ's crucifixion which will carry over into next week's passage that further records Christ's death, followed then on Palm Sunday by the passage on Christ's burial, such that we'll arrive at the passage on Christ's resurrection on Easter Sunday. Our passage today begins uh, with the first of four groups of people who mock and revile Jesus. This first group that mocks and reviles him is made up of Roman soldiers who lead him away from the trial before Pilate and into some inner portion of what is called the palace. It's probably Herod's palace in the, the western part of the city, though it, it could have been the fortress Antonia just northwest of the temple area. We don't know for sure. These soldiers who lead him away, they, they have some time alone together with Jesus before leading him out to the cross. So what do they do with this time alone with Jesus in his final hours? Do they ask him one final set of questions about life and about death and about the law of God, as so many others had? Do they plead for him to just speak a word to heal some ailing family member of theirs, as so many others had? No, they call together the whole battalion in order to entertain themselves with cruelty. A battalion uh, would have consisted of somewhere between 200 and 600 soldiers. We're not told how long this grotesque show lasts. We're only told that three hours, three hours elapsed from the time that the chief priest delivered Jesus over to Pilate in verse 1 to the time that these soldiers finally hang Jesus on the cross in verse 25. So it could be a while that they are entertaining themselves with cruelty. 
They treat Jesus the way they treated leaders of armies who sought to overthrow their empire and to bring them into subjugation. They dressed him up in something meant to parody a uh, robe of a king, something meant to parody the, the laurel crown worn by the emperor of Rome, but this one with painful thorns cutting into his brow. Matthew notes that they even placed a staff in his right hand to resemble a, a king's scepter. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! Repeatedly striking him on the head with a rod of some kind, spitting on him, kneeling down before him in homage. When a mob is granted authority over someone whom they perceive to have threatened them and to have sought to exert authority over them, when they are given authority over that person, there are no limits to the extent of human cruelty. As they insist, you are not the king you claim to be. As we read of this grotesque display of cruelty, not only must we not think that we uh, are, that such cruelty is somehow beyond us, that, that we were somehow born with a less sinful nature than these men. For human history, both ancient and modern, proves otherwise. We must also recognize what, what's really being put on display here. This rejection of rightful authority traces all the way back to the beginning, back to the Garden of Eden, where the serpent said to the first man and the first woman, Hath God actually said, Don't eat of that tree? Ah, oh, you will surely not die. He's not going to follow through with those threats. He's not really the king that he claims to be. The same statement is made by each one of us every time that we consciously sin against our Creator. You are not the king you claim to be, we say in our sin. You are not the judge of me. And so, in our sin, we mock His claims of authority over us, and we revile His holy character and law. What we see here in the beginning of our passage is a picture of rejecting Jesus as your King. It's a picture of our sin. It's a picture of the, the culmination of all human rebellion against our rightful judge. Verse 20, And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a, a passerby. That is, they, they conscripted, they, they forced into service this man to carry Jesus' cross for him. You're probably familiar. The, the, the normal practice was for the condemned man, the man condemned to die by crucifixion, for him to drag the, the horizontal crossbeam from the place of conviction to the place of execution. Where in, in most cases at that time, the upright post of the cross was already in the ground. So he's grabbing and dragging the crossbeam that will be hung up there. So the fact that, that Jesus did not carry the beam all the way to the cross himself implies that he was not physically able to do so. Having already been flogged, which sometimes was fatal in and of itself, and then repeatedly struck on the head with a rod by that battalion of men. 
He seems too weak to carry the cross himself. So they grabbed this guy who was coming in from the country, it says. Now, it's too early in the morning for Simon to be, be coming in from working the fields. Uh, most likely, uh, he was simply residing outside of Jerusalem proper for the multi-day feast. And he was just coming into the city for the day. It's Passover. Uh, just as Jesus and his disciples had been doing the same thing all week, all, ever since Sunday. They had been residing outside of the city in, in, in Bethany and coming in to Jerusalem in the morning. That's what he seems to be doing. This man, he's identified as, as Simon of Cyrene. That's in North Africa. Modern day Libya. Libya was a nation that we were praying for this last week as it's the fifth most dangerous place to be a Christian. Well, he is from Libya in North Africa. His name is Simon. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why such detail about this man? How many people have we encountered in Mark's gospel who went unnamed? Almost all of them. Nearly every person that Jesus miraculously healed is left unnamed. Nearly every person who, who challenged Jesus or spoke ill of Jesus is left unnamed. The soldiers, the passerbys, the chief priests, and the rebels in our passage are all left unnamed. But this man, he's not only named, we're told where he's from, and we're told the names of his two kids. What? Why? The obvious assumption is that Mark's original readers must have known these three names. The obvious assumption is that by the time of the writing of Mark's gospel, Simon and his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, had become followers of the risen king. That they were known throughout the early church. So having carried Christ's cross, and having followed Christ to the place of crucifixion, it would appear that Simon continued to follow him. It seems unavoidable to conclude that Mark intends for us as his readers to see in this an illustration of Jesus' Jesus's charge back in chapter 8. Remember it. He said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So in a sense, Simon of Cyrene is being presented as the very first person to do just that. To take up his cross and follow Jesus. So while the passage begins with a picture of rejecting Jesus as your king, here we have a picture of receiving Jesus as your king. Verse 22. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha which means place of a skull. Now, we don't know the exact modern-day location, but Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, makes it clear that Jesus was killed outside of the city gates of Jerusalem. Much as the bodies of animals that were continually offered as sin offerings in the temple there were disposed of, those bodies were disposed of by being burnt outside the city walls, outside the camp, we're told. Well, so too was Jesus' body killed outside the camp. Crucifixions took place along well-traveled roads. 
so that as many people as possible would pass by and behold the suffering that came for those who threatened the crown of Rome. Verse 23, And they offered Him wine mixed with myrrh. Why wine mixed with myrrh? Well, this is believed to have been given as a drug to relieve the terrible pain of crucifixion. But who is they? Who, who is it that, that gives them this wine mixed with myrrh? Probably not the, the vicious Roman soldiers, right? Who are just beating him over the head and mocking him. Rather, it's, it's probably more just some compassionate onlookers. Proverbs 31 verse 6 says, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing. Give wine to those in bitter distress. There's an ancient Jewish tradition based on that where the women of Jerusalem provided a narcotic drink for those who were condemned to die by crucifixion. But he did not take it, it says. Why not? Why not take this drug that would alleviate his pain? Well, it's assumed that it's because he didn't want to lose control of his mental faculties. After all, inebriation is a sin, and he is the sinless Savior. And further, he had come into the world to suffer in our place, to drink the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. And so he did. Verse 24, And they crucified him, and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Before modern textile technologies, clothing was far more valuable than it is today. And this was a, a normal part of, of the compensation for executioners to take the victim's clothing. But when this is placed in contrast, immediate contrast to Simon, of Cyrene denying himself and bearing a cross and apparently receiving Jesus as his Savior King, it highlights how these men were seeking to profit off of Christ's death in a very different way. Right? It brings to mind those who chase after the false gospel of health and wealth in our day, seeking to, to gain earthly blessings from a false conception of a crucified Savior while the true Jesus is offering eternal blessings if you will deny yourself earthly blessings for the sake of glorifying Him. You don't need to cast lots to decide what to take from Jesus. Take His righteousness. Nothing greater could possibly be offered to you. Continuing that charge from Jesus back in chapter 8 about taking your cross and following Him, He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So never mind these earthly blessings that they take off the back of Jesus as they killed him. Receive the eternal blessing of righteousness through faith in him. Verse 25, and it was the third hour, that is of daylight, so it's about 9 a.m., when, quote, they crucified him. Just three words in English, just two words in the Greek text. They crucified 
him. Why no explanation of the the hammering of the nails through his hands and his feet? Why no mention of the nails at all? Why no explanation of, of why it took six hours for him to die? Why no explanation of the horrific way that death finally came to him? Not due to loss of blood or loss of fluids, but due to asphyxiation. As the victim finally became too weak to raise his chest to gasp for air and suffocates to death. In other words, my question is this. Why do the gospel records lack all of the gory details that so many movies and books and sermons spend so much time focusing on? Think about that. Have you ever noticed that discrepancy? Well, I think there are a few answers. I'm going to give five. For one, the horror of crucifixion would have been well understood by all of the original readers. They didn't need it explained to them. That's one. Secondly, uh, the details are horrific to put in writing. Our English adjective, excruciating, derives from the Latin word for cross. In other words, this form of torture was so heinous that humans had to come up with a new adjective to describe the pain involved. The Roman philosopher Cicero, around this time, he wrote, let the very word cross, let the very word cross be far removed, not only from the bodies of Roman citizens, because Roman citizens weren't subjected to crucifixion, no matter what they did, but not only let it be far removed from the bodies of Roman citizens, let the word cross even be far removed from their thoughts, from their eyes, and from their ears. This cruel and disgusting penalty, as Cicero described it, was not to be mentioned in polite society. So that's the second reason not to describe it. Thirdly, the four gospel records clearly intend to call to mind the the far more vivid description found in Psalm 22, being fulfilled on the cross, which we read earlier in the service. I'll pick up part of that again. Psalm 22, verse 14, looking at Christ on the cross hundreds of years earlier, it says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots." Mark intends for that to be brought to your mind. And so he doesn't need to describe it here. Fourthly, including a graphic description of crucifixion in the Gospels may have been seen as unhelpful for these people living in a context where death by crucifixion was a very real possibility for them if they followed Jesus, as was experienced by so many of them, Peter included. Jesus tells Peter at the end of John's gospel that he is going to die by crucifixion. So it could have been seen as unhelpful to describe that in the gospel accounts. 
But fifthly, and I think primarily, this lack of emphasis on the details, the gory details of the crucifixion in the Gospels, what does it do? It serves to draw attention elsewhere. Not on the gory details of what Christ suffered, but onto the mocking and reviling of Christ by four different groups of people. That's the emphasis of our text. Why is that the emphasis of our text? Four different groups mocking and reviling Jesus. Well, because that's the expected experience of every follower of Christ. A servant of Christ is not greater than his master. If they have mocked and reviled the Lord Jesus Christ, his followers can expect no less. It's a major part of Mark's gospel. As the charge from chapter 8 that I've been quoting from concluded, Jesus said this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Take up your cross and follow him. Bear mocking and reviling as he did. Understand what it means to receive him as your king. Verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. From Matthew's account, uh, we know that this inscription was engraved on a placard, a wooden placard that was nailed to the cross above Jesus' head. Matthew 27, 37. From John, uh, we know that it was engraved in three different languages for all to read, Aramaic and Latin and Greek. The official charge against Jesus by the Romans was treason. It was claiming to be king is why they killed him. But as we saw with, with the trial before Pontius Pilate, right before this, Pilate did not believe that Jesus was a threat to the crown. He did not believe that Jesus deserved death. But given the insistence of the crowds, it was more expedient to go ahead with these charges, unjust as they were. But Pilate didn't write treason or insurrection or this man claimed to be king on that placard. No, Pilate wrote king of the Jews, presumably as a way both to further mock Jesus and to further infuriate the leaders of the Jews who had handed Jesus over to be killed. It's really goad them. The Jewish authorities had certainly not received Jesus as their king, as they handed him over to die. They weren't looking uh, to kill everyone who even claimed to be a Messiah, the promised king from the line of David. They wanted a Messiah, just not this kind of Messiah. For this self-proclaimed Messiah had done nothing to deliver his people from the Roman oppressors. Instead, he had come speaking judgment upon his own people. He had come speaking judgment upon the nation of Israel. And so he had to die. Verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Remember what was written back up in verse 7 during the, the trial before Pilate. It said, Among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. This group of rebels who are in prison for committing an insurrection. So then the word robbers here in verse 27, it, it can mean robber, but the broader meaning of outlaw, insurrectionist, rebel seems far more appropriate. It's the same word that Jesus used as he was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 14. He said, have you come out 
as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me. Well, robber doesn't sound right in that context any more than it does in this. My point is this. I think all the other English translations do a better job with this word. These men were not robbers. They were not thieves on a cross. They are treasonous rebels. And that is the charge against us. The king was punished as a rebel with rebels for rebels. That is, in the place of rebels. It wasn't just Barabbas' place that Jesus took there on that cross, right? It was the place of all who receive him as their king, trusting in his death for the, for the forgiveness of their sin of rebellion against their creator. As had been foretold through the prophet Isaiah more than 700 years earlier, from Isaiah 53 in the CSB translation, he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. And yet, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And so we read of the other three groups who mocked and reviled Jesus in his lowest moment. Verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. As in his trial before the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin, these, these passerbys, they, they misrepresent his pronouncement of the coming destruction of the, the temple. As though he had been claiming it, it'd be part of some political revolution of his that he was bringing. They taunt him saying, save yourself and come down from the cross. Which he absolutely could have done. And that's the point. As Matthew records Jesus saying during his arrest in Gethsemane, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? He could have come down from that cross, but He didn't. For if the sinless Savior had saved Himself, then no sinner could be saved. Behold the cost of your redemption. Verse 31, group number three. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. Remember, the, the, the authorities never denied that Jesus was a great miracle worker. But because he did his miracles on the Sabbath. He, he healed people on the Sabbath and thus violated their, their man-made, self-righteous, God-dishonoring traditions. They were convinced that he worked miracles by the power of Satan. And thus the taunt, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Well, that is the gospel. It was by not saving himself that he then saves others. They taunt him with the gospel of grace. Verse 32. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. 
Well, you tell me, which is the greater show of power? Breaking the nails that held him there and coming down from that cross? Or breaking the bars of death and coming up out of the grave? Which is the greater show of power and authority? He's about to do the latter. The temple of his body is being destroyed, but it will be rebuilt in three days. Will you now see and believe? As you consider the call to see and believe, you must recognize that as Jesus was not spared from mocking and reviling, and even from torture and from death, we too may not be spared from such suffering, but because of His suffering in our place, as He was raised from the dead, so too will all who follow after Him and bear His reproach. Finally, group number four of mockers and revilers. Group number four, second half of verse 32. Those who were crucified with Him also reviled Him. Those who were crucified with Him also reviled him. Of course, we know from Luke's account that at some point during the six hours that Jesus spent hanging on that cross, at some point, one of the two criminals to his left and his right experienced a, a radical transformation of heart. He must have seen something in the way that Jesus suffered. And in the way that all the other people were treating Jesus, he must have heard something in what Jesus said, either here on the cross or perhaps some teaching this man had heard about that was now echoing in his ears as death closed in on him and as his final judgment drew near. Something changed him. It was not in beholding Jesus climb down from that cross that this rebel saw and believed. It was in beholding Jesus remain there on the cross that he saw and believed the just in place of the unjust and so at some point in their time there on the cross together this man told the other rebel quote do you not fear god since you are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds but this man has done nothing wrong and he said to jesus jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23. Today, look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let it serve as the corrective lenses you need to see things clearly. To see what this fellow rebel of yours saw on the cross. And to believe as he believed and was saved. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for sending Your Son, our Savior, the soon-coming King, to live and to die and to rise again in our place. Embolden us to be willing to follow His path, no matter the cost, that He may be glorified in and through our lives. Bless the preaching of Your Word in the name of Jesus Christ, our crucified yet risen King, we pray. Amen.